This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, beautiful, crisp fall day. Happy Halloween to you all. Well, I have a bit of a, a scary tale, if you will, uh, but it's also um, kind of an inspiring one. My guest today has quite a story to tell about how quickly life can change and how factors like chance, timing, healthy living, and the extraordinary efforts of healthcare professionals can make all the difference. Well, many of our listeners may remember, and I know, Claude, you remember well, um, Tom Ormsby. Tommy O, as he is also remembered, started radio in radio, sorry, in Newfoundland back in 1984. His nearly 19-year Newfoundland radio career involved building five, uh, sorry, 850 and later 560 CHVO country in Carboneer into a popular radio go-to in the Trinity Conception area. He later moved into St. John's, where he served as operations manager for 590 VOCM. He was uh, involved with sports here and hosted the Irish Newfoundland show. Well, my radio career began in 1989 on uh, Saddle Hill in Carboneer alongside Tom, who later moved on to other industry sectors on the mainland. He eventually settled down in Halifax, where last year, feeling a bit under the weather, he presented at a co COVID-19 testing clinic to get a swab, a routine procedure, something he needed to get back to work, wondering whether or not he might have been uh, carrying around that virus. Well, little did he know the life and death battle he was about to wage, and he joins me now to share his story. Hi, Tom. Hey, Linda. How are you? Good. So uh, for our, the benefit of our listeners, because a lot of time has elapsed since you left the industry, and there's Ooh. a few people here who remember you well, and others who are like, I don't know if I know Tom or not. Well, tell <laughs> us a little bit about your radio career here in Newfoundland. Well, I started, as you mentioned, in VOCM in the newsroom uh, with all the uh, great, uh, great legends of the day, uh, Mike Critch. Senior, um, of course, Jerry Phelan, Scott Chafe, George McLaren, uh, Vince Gallant. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous uh, experience. So I, I worked in the news side of things for a couple of years in the VOCM newsroom in St. John's. And then they asked me to become the morning person out in Carboneer. Where at CHVO, of course, where we met. Uh, we see it at the time, as you're right, 850 CHVO country, we used to call it. And then we had a frequency uh, change and became uh, first on the dial, best in the bay. So I was in Carboneer seven years, uh, where I was the morning announcer. And again, as you know, we did so much in the public appearance space, it was great. You know, we traveled all around Trinity Conception. I did so many activities and events and parades and and uh, and pageants and things. And then um, I started helping with the rest of the network. I, you know, Grand Falls, Marystown, Gander, and uh, and Clarenville. And so I came back into St. John's and moved into a, a management role. But I still maintained an on-air presence. Um, I couldn't I couldn't shake that, which eventually developed into the Irish Newfoundland show. Uh, and, and the Saturday morning show had, had a real kind of roots to it for a long, a long time. Anyway, I was actually a newsreader when, when John Reynolds was hosting it. It was more of a country uh, show back uh, back in the early 80s. But eventually it became very strong in the Irish Newfoundland uh, 
uh, space. And boy, did we have a lot of fun doing that. Uh, I did that for quite a long time until I eventually um, left VOCM and moved on to what became corporate communications and public relations, which I've been doing for the last 20 years, basically. Right. That uh, those jobs have taken you all over the world. Is that correct? They did. I uh, I first went to Northern Ontario to help build Ontario's first diamond mine. I was part of the management team that uh, that built that mine. I'd had a couple of roles in between, but that uh, that got me into really uh, a bit of a globe-trotting role. I came down after that mine opened up down to the Toronto area and became the uh, communications um, and public relations function head for De Beers in, in Canada, which had two operating mines at the time and another project that was being um, being developed and other interests targets around. And then that role eventually led me to taking on some roles on some global committees. I actually sat on De Beers' uh, corporate affairs leadership team, they called it. We met regularly, uh, you know, London, Southern Africa, um, in the U.S., things like that. Uh, so I gave a lot of support to the, the global operations. I also sat on the sustainability committee, which was really good. I mean, people talk today about, you know, companies finding their purpose and things like that and how to give back. And that was a big part of it as well. And I did a lot of work in the U.S. Um, with the retail side of the business, although, you know, in Canada, De Beers activities were on the mining side. Um, I, I did a lot of um, coaching and training and workshop development for the retailers in the U.S. who were selling uh, the diamonds that De Beers were, were, were mining. So, yeah, I had, a, I had quite a, a quite a busy passport. i got to be honest. I, did fill, I filled it out a few times, uh, and it had lapsed during COVID. I actually need to get another one. <laughs> and uh, and for other reasons that, that we'll get into yes. in, a, in a short while, but uh, very different from radio. Well, you know, it, it is, I guess, and, it, and oddly enough, it, it wasn't in a way because we were, and I, I assume VOCM still is very community driven. And so what I do is really in, in the public relations side of things, you know, people can describe it, you know, communications or public affairs, but basically it's public relations. And so it's a lot of outreach to communities. Um, and then, of course, my news background helped me with the media side of understanding things as well. It just became a little more formal to understand how to communicate to large organizations. You know, we at VOCM had a pretty, pretty large team at seven stations at the time. And, you know, I, I'm guessing we had about 100 employees. And that was that's still pretty impressive. But now I was trying to communicate to thousands of employees and in some cases, tens of thousands of employees. And so, you know, it was just a matter of learning how you know, a corporate function communicates to their to their various target groups, right? So employees would be a target group. Even the management team needs to be communicated to in a certain way so they understand the business. And, and then, you know, the, those who are impacted by your business. And so it was a bit of learning through that. But, you know, there are, there are enough similarities that it wasn't a, a total shock. But, I, I, you know, I certainly didn't go in knowing everything. I'll tell you that. I'm, even today, I know I don't know everything. But uh, it wasn't as frightening as I thought it might be. So whenever I think of you, and uh, anyone who's met you will probably uh, make similar observations, is that you were always a big sports guy. Love it. Love it. Even today, I love it. And you were always very active and on the go, even if it wasn't actively involved in sports, but you were always in the community, as you've said. Yes. Yeah. Well, we had so much fun. Yeah. First of all, yes. I mean, I grew up playing sports like most many people do. Most people have the opportunity. I was lucky to have that opportunity and, you know, tried everything. Right. I mean, you know, I caddied even for four years when I was a kid, you know, at a golf, local golf course that make money. I didn't even golf then, but that's how I got into the golf side of things. But yeah, I've been a, a sports fan my whole life. My sister is a world-class sports writer. She has a brilliant career over, over 30 years. 
um, you know, I like being around it and uh, I enjoy, I just enjoy uh, physical things, the activity, and, and it really doesn't matter what it is. And so I've always enjoyed that that part and I still do today I mean you know obviously not as young as I used to be but I still exercise regularly and you know, I'm, I'm planning on golfing after this uh, after you and I finish up our chat today and squeezing in nine holes because it's such a nice day here and but, you're yeah, in Halifax so you've got a beautiful day out there as well yes just like Newfoundland as well I mean I today first of all I am so happy for the kids this is one of the few Halloweens they're actually going to be able to wear their costumes properly Right. You know, not over top of a ski suit or, you know, some, a raincoat or whatever. It's probably one of the few Halloweens they actually get to dress up and they won't be too uncomfortable or cold or miserable. So I was really happy for the kids. But, yeah, we're having that great extended uh, summer, uh, fall that, uh, that much of Canada's had. I realize it's probably climate change driven, which is probably on the bad side of things. But, yes, we're having that. We're having those really unseasonably warm temperatures. So all of this is leading us to sort of a a crucial time in your life, and we're going to go into that a little bit when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Tom Ormsby. Many of our listeners will remember him from here in VOCM. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Good evening, Newfoundland and Labrador. Tommy O here at 6.07. Sorry for the technical delay, but filling in tonight for Mike LeBlanc. I don't know what I did, but I did it, and it's now fixed, and we'd like to thank all of our staff here at VOCM for helping us out. Well, now there's a blast from the past, Tom. (laughs) Where did you find that? Dave Williams, our producer, uh, pulled that out of some archive from somewhere, but that gives a sense <laughs> of uh, your work here. <laughs> Doesn't it sound? I I know. I um, I just recently received a lifetime achievement award, which freaked me out. But uh, some but uh, well deserved too, by the way. Thank you. But some audio was hauled out of somewhere, uh, thanks to Jerry Phelan, and uh, wow, you can really hear the time <laughs> <laughs> so that'll give our se- uh, our listeners a sense of who you are and uh, what you've done here um but um making mistakes on the radio apparently but uh, oh, yes. this brings us to the crux of what you've been through over the last little while so just walk us through what happened uh, you had gone in to get a routine covid test which almost all of us have done over the last little while Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm in Halifax. I've been here about three years. I came down to uh, take on a role at the Halifax shipyard to head, to head up their communications and help them with some issues that they were having. And you know, we were de- designated as an essential industry by the government, building Navy ships you know, for Canada. So had to keep going. And But at that stage last year, we were all into really what month 14, 15 of COVID. And we were at the routine at that point of everyone was getting a weekly rapid test. But, you know, in order to return, you know, keep coming to work. But then we also had a rule that if you don't feel well, go get schedule a PCR test, a proper full on test that had a higher uh, accuracy rate. And so I wasn't feeling that great. We were getting ready. We were going to deliver a ship to the Navy the next day. It was a project that I had been leading and you know, preparing for and doing all the organizing for to turn over this new ship for the Navy fleet. And I just wasn't feeling very good. So I had texted our team the evening before and said, look, you know what, there's a there's two parts to the event. In the morning, there's a legal thing we have to do, signatures for insurance and all that. 
Then in the afternoon, some more public event involving the crew and some invited guests and things like that, because there's still COVID. So we had a cap of what you could really do and how many people could attend. But we still had an event plan. The media would attend. I said, I should be there for that one. But I'm going to run in and get a test, but I still don't feel well in the morning. Woke up, didn't feel great. So I said, before I go to the doctor, I might as well run in and get a COVID test, just because that's the first thing they'll ask anyway, have you had a COVID test? So I went in, and, and I've said this to others before, I was really, really lucky. A lot of things have been very fortunate for me. Uh, and so when I went in, the COVID clinics here in Nova Scotia, and I'm guessing around the country probably very similar, they had a mixture of medical team members and then people who had been hired to help administer the swap. You know, and so when I went in, uh, there was a nurse and she was about my age and um, and she, you know, she asked me how I was doing. I told her I didn't feel that good, but I was, you know, I needed a test before I could return to work. And so she said, OK. And she ran my vitals after she did my COVID test and she sat me down. She separated me from everybody and put me to the far side of this. Um, this it used to be a store, I guess they were using for the for the testing clinic. She put me on the far side and said, okay, just wait over here. I'm going to get the other nurse. And so there was another nurse. She came over. Again, she did all my uh, vitals as well. And then she stopped and went back. And they called the doctor. And in their conversation with the doctor, now I still didn't know what was going on. So I texted my wife in the parking lot to come in. And when they came back after consulting with the doctor, they said, you have to go to hospital right now. And there's an ambulance coming for you. And I'm startled by all this. And so I said, well, I don't know what's going on. I said, we can drive. You know, my wife is right here. And they said, okay. And they wrote out the name of the doctor and handed it to me. And they said, you have to go to this specific hospital and say, this doctor sent you. And I was baffled. I had no idea what to think. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't, I just didn't feel great. I just, but I didn't feel ill. So we drove down to the hospital, my wife dropped me and she went to park and I walked in and in the initial intake and screening area, you know, I went in and got to the, the one of the stations, I guess, where one of the medical people would be there, you know, processing your your arrival, you know, right? You know, what's your name? What's your medical card number, et cetera, et cetera? Why are you here? And I'm hand, trying to hand this guy this note saying, here's the doctor gets I got sent here from a COVID clinic. And the guy was kind of just, you know, really wasn't, you know, interested in what I was saying. You know, I said, look, the only reason I'm here is they sent me. He said, okay, fine, fine. And he runs through all the intake stuff. And then he does my vitals. And this is when I realized, okay, Something was really going on here. He got up from where he was and he ran into the back to get the doctors and nurses. And honestly, they all came running out. My wife was just coming into the emergency area where I was and they ran right past her. That had to freak you out. It did. Well, they ran right past her, grabbed me. They grabbed me and then ran me into a room. I was like, what is going on? And put me down and put me on this bed and like started putting oxygen into me. And when they were running my vitals, I guess they were realizing there was so little oxygen moving effectively through my body that things must have been happening in a very, I don't know how to describe it because I don't know medically what was going on. But what happened was I, I was suffering from double pneumonia at the time. Now, I'd been working I'd been exercising. I'd been golfing all this while I had double pneumonia. I didn't know. But what was happening, the reason the double pneumonia developed, I later later learned my heart was failing. And so there was not enough uh, oxygen moving properly through my body. And the day I went to the clinic and the day I got to that emergency room, it was everything was just spiraling at that point. And so this is where the oxygen came from. And I was there the rest of the evening, and I remember being in this, I'm going to call it a holding room. I don't know the right way to describe it. It's basically a temporary room off off of emergency before they figure out what to do with you. 
I remember being there, but that's the last thing I remember because I had such poor oxygen in my body. I, I was fully intubated that night. And then my body started to fail even faster and I was put into a coma. And I was in that coma for a month. And I, you know, when I woke up, I had no idea what happened. None. And it, and, uh, it, it yeah. got pretty touch and go there because uh, as someone who's known you for a very long time, I was kept abreast of, of the developments by your wonderful wife. Um, and we're going to get into that in a moment. But prior to this, did you have any sense that, you know, you were feeling other than, a, you know, a general, I guess, uh, slight malaise? But did you have any sense that things were going wrong? No, no. And, you know, my assumption was, uh, well, finally, maybe I finally got COVID. You know, that was kind of my assumption. And, you know, I wasn't dismissing COVID because I know how serious it is. I mean, so many people have died from it. So it's, you know, there's nothing to laugh at, right? But I thought, oh, maybe this is it finally after a year and a half. I finally got it, you know. But I didn't really have anything else. Like I was walking our golf course. Like, you know, we got a pretty tough course where I live and, uh, you know, hilly and everything else. But I didn't really have anything. Now, my family says, well, I was I had a nagging cough for a couple of weeks. But again, I didn't know what that could have meant. It could have meant anything. It could have been, you know, allergies to the, you know, to the season. Um, so I didn't, I didn't feel anything like that. But touch and go was right. That first night, they told my wife, who was with me, obviously, because she'd brought me to hospital. They told her to go get the family and come in and say goodbye. But they didn't think I was making the first night. That's how fast things spiraled downhill. And just by chance that you went in and got this COVID test and had a nurse who immediately recognized yeah. that something was amiss. Yeah, something serious was amiss. How lucky, like how lucky that that was a nurse who took me and not someone who didn't have medical training. You know, I mean, again, I mentioned earlier, it's a lot of good fortunes happened in my life, and that was certainly one of them. And, but also, I, I will say, too, I was, um, you know, I, the right, I, I like to think that good things happened because I did the right thing. I went and got tested because I, I was worried if I had COVID, I didn't want to give it to anybody else. You know, so maybe sometimes, you know, you get some reward for trying to do the right thing. I don't know, but <laughs> I'd like to think that. And you never had COVID at all? No, and not since either. That's wood, right? Yeah, it's about the only thing I didn't have, to be honest. After uh, the ordeal I went through, I was, uh, I was in hospital for three more months. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is uh, Tom Ormsby, also known as Tommy O, telling us his, uh, wow, extraordinary healthcare story uh, when we come back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today is Tom Ormsby, and uh, he served as an announcer here on VOCM for nearly two decades and uh, just came out of a real life-or-death fight. And, uh, Tom, you said you uh, you went into a clinic to get a COVID swab, and within just a few hours, you were unconscious um, and in hospital for months after that. So uh, what happened? What's your understanding of what happened after, after they put you in a coma yeah they put they put me in a coma for a few a couple of reasons in particular one was again my body was failing really fast and they weren't sure why so they had to just sedate me as much as they could and try to figure out okay how do we slow things down and then they were convinced i had covid because of the difficulty i had in my lungs because of course COVID was quite rampant um, at the time. And, um, but my blood work apparently wasn't matching up. So they were struggling. Eventually they figured out I had this double pneumonia that we had chatted about. 
But I'd had the pneumonia, I guess, for a period of time, and it was getting worse and worse. And now what was happening to my body, my body was going sepsis. And that's when it's this body shock, total body infection. And that is pretty fatal. Um, it's got a high mortality rate, you know, higher than stroke and higher than heart attacks, actually. And so they were trying to wrestle that down as fast as they could, which meant pumping me with every possible, you know, um, anti um, narcotics, even really trying to antibiotics, just trying to fight this infection and stabilize my body, which was just having this uh, horrible reaction. Then they still had to figure out well, what else was going on. How come you know, I'm so bad? It's not can't just be the pneumonia, but so they consulted eventually with the cardiovascular team, and that's why I think they wanted me to go to that particular hospital here in Halifax because that's where their heart specialists all are. And it was probably not a lucky guess, but probably an educated guess that, you know, best to go to this hospital. And so the cardiovascular team consulted and came down. And over the next day or so, they narrowed it down and figured out one of the valves in my heart had shut down. So I was going into congestive heart failure, which was bringing on the double pneumonia. And then double pneumonia brought on the sepsis. And so all of this stuff started to, to be pretty difficult for the body to deal with. And so this is why it induced me in the coma. And they kept me in the coma for about, I think it was about a week and then they tried to bring me out of the uh, of the coma because they wanted to prepare me for surgery for my heart because they couldn't do it in my current state. It was too risky. And so when they tried bringing me out, they couldn't. It just it wasn't happening. They couldn't figure out. They had it. They tried for several days in a row, and you know they were trying to medically bring me out of the coma. It wasn't happening. And then up to the point where actually one of the doctors said to my wife, you know, like we hate to ask this question, but has your husband got a drug problem? You know. Because, you know, I was on narcotics and everything else in this coma. And they wondered, you know, maybe he likes them, you know. And she, and she said it was, you know, it was one of those dark humor moments. She said, drug problem. He doesn't even drink caffeine. And, and so they just couldn't figure out why I couldn't wake up. But this was becoming an issue because now my heart was continuing to fail. And they were kind of drawing a couple lines on the, you know, on the chart saying at some point these lines are going to cross and we're going to have to do this surgery. So when they finally... Um, decided they were going to do my surgery. They'd actually said to my family, okay, we're going to do it tomorrow. It got me all ready. You know, I was still out in a coma, obviously. It was two weeks in at this point. And um, they went to my family later in the day, said there's two other people more serious than your husband and father. So his surgery will guarantee be the day after tomorrow. Well, the next morning at 6 a.m., my wife got a phone call from the hospital, and they said, you better get in here and bring the family. We're doing the surgery right now. And I had basically um, crashed that morning, and one of the nurses in the unit had saved my life. I, had, my, I was having such a struggle. There were actually two nurses. I was in intensive care. I was in intensive care um, 63 days in total. And at this point, I'd been on life support since the first night. And I had two nurses stationed by my bed 24 hours a day. That's how bad my situation was. Because in addition to my heart failing and the pneumonia, my liver wasn't processing the drugs. My kidneys weren't working properly. I was going to multiple organ failure at the same time, as well as having this full body infection and a heart that wasn't working. Right, and so um, a, a nurse had saved my life that morning, and they put me into surgery that morning. They said, "Okay, normally the, the success rate of this surgery when they repair the heart valve is about ninety-eight point seven percent or something like that," and they gave my family odds of seventy. They said, "You know, at best we'll give you seventy because of the condition I was in." And they said, well, we have to do it. And the family agreed. And they, we did the surgery. And the surgery technically went fine. And then immediately once the surgery was over, I crashed again. And the team in that operating room spent the next three hours just keeping me alive. 
You know, uh, they were doing everything to keep me alive. And then to the point they'd even brought in a mechanical lung and they were preparing to put that to me. And uh, I stabilized, so they didn't have to use that mechanical lung, but the doctors been on standby for the next 24 hours in case I crashed again and they were going to have to use it. And at that point, it was hour by hour. And I told the family again, you better say goodbye because this might be it. And uh, so hour by hour, and uh, the next morning, you know, I'm still there. And uh, you know, we, we kind of kept on this journey for the next two weeks. And eventually, you know, things started to finally turn the corner. The sepsis had been um, wrestled to the ground, you know, enough that my body could start to try to recover. And, yeah, so I was 41 days in total on life support uh, in a coma for a month. Uh, even when they took me off all the drugs, I was still in a coma for another two weeks. So it was, uh, it was quite a battle. And you know, when I woke up, I had no idea what had just happened. None. You could have told me anything, I would have believed you, because I, I, I had no idea. Your body was trying to shut down. Sounds like it sounds like it was basically it was just failing, right? Things were just failing because there was so much stress on everything in the system. Like one of these things on its own is tough enough, right? And then to have multiple, like when someone has, I saw a study, someone has uh, three, if three organs fail, the likelihood of surviving is 12%. I had four fail, right? And then I had uh, sepsis on top of that. So it was just, my body was just being battered and, uh, you know, and then after they kind of got me stabilized after the surgery and the heart started working again, then the oxygen started moving through my body. It was just a matter of you know, how much damage had been done. One of the quotes the doctor gave to my wife was, there's nowhere to go but up. And he, but he, when he said it, he didn't mean it in a positive way. What he meant was I couldn't afford any no more backward steps. If I had another backward step, it was over. And so that's kind of where they had to go every day. Like, you know, uh, it was literally hour by hour for quite a while. And then uh, and the things started to come back. And, and then I woke up and you know, that, that in itself was weird enough, you know, uh, waking up not knowing why, where you are and why you're there and why you've got all these tubes sticking out of you and uh, why you've got all these scars on your body. And, and I was just quite a mess. I mean, I'd, I'd lost 51 pounds while I was lying in bed. Right? I mean, I, that's 27% of my body mass. I'd lost. I was skin over bone. Right? And so your strength was all gone. I didn't have enough strength to lift up the sheet on the bed when I woke up. And so it was, it was quite a state for sure. And then I think for me, like my family had a hard time because they saw this every day. I, I got the first month I kind of got off, you know, get out of jail free, you know, because I didn't know what was going on. When I woke up and then I realized what, I had to realize what state I was in. Like, was I even going to make it? All right. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And then to see how, how bad a condition I was in, it was like, oh, am I even going to get out of this hospital? You know? I didn't, I had no idea what my future was going to be. I didn't know. I didn't know. I had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to eat because my jaws weren't working. All right? I was on feeding tubes for uh, seven, eight weeks. So, you know, my jaws were, you know, jammed open with these feeding tubes and stuff. And even today, my jaws don't, still don't open fully. Um, it was quite a road back. And that was hard. That was a, that was something I would never, until you experience it, you have no idea how hard it was, right? And I've always been, you know, I like to think I'm an empathetic person, but wow, I'm going through it now. I, I look at people who've survived things like this worse, and I'm like, wow, what a journey, right? Any permanent damage? No, there's lingering. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, I say no. I mean, I have this card I have to show at the airport now. When I go get screened, I don't have to go through the machine anymore, <laughs> get a pat down because I got a, you know, a valve somewhere. I got a ring somewhere in the valve of my heart. 
but uh, nothing like long-term. Like I had uh, some, what would they call microbleeds on the brain, which are kind of like mini stroke, mini hemorrhage type events. But my doctor says, you know, like, you know, the way I, um, you know, I, I'm fully uh, aware and conscious and cognitive and, you know, no slurred speech, things like that. So no, there's nothing like that, but I've got some lingering stuff. The inflammation in my body right now is still more than twice normal levels. Uh, because my body was just so battered by the infection. And, but, but at one time, the inflation in my body was more than seven times normal levels. So at least, you know, so those things are improving. But um, no, from a permanent uh, damage point of view, nothing that they said you can't anymore. You know, like I'm working out again. Uh, you know, I'm walking the golf course again. Um, you know, there's nothing they said I couldn't do. You know, and, and again, it was a heart failure. It was a mechanical heart failure, basically. The valve just stopped working, as opposed to, say, someone who may be suffering from heart disease which might have, you know, problems with their arteries and things like that, or maybe they're not having stress or whatever, you know, heart, uh, heart disease brings on, you know. So mine was more of a mechanical failure, and now that that's fixed, there's things that, um, you know, um, that they can do to help me in my recovery. So, no, good, I'm good as far as uh, they said, no, no restrictions anymore, other than a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discomfort, and I had a lot of bed sores, you know, they call them pressure wounds now. I had a lot of bed sores. I had one really, really bad one, um, you know, that uh, that affects me, so it bothers me today. But uh, it's been it's been fixed, you know. It had to be fixed surgically, but it's still, uh, you know, the result of that is you know missing some tissue and nerves and things. So I do get uncomfortable in certain ways. But uh, no, overall it's good. I can still live my life, which is really, uh, which is really, uh, I'm lucky. I'm blessed, right? And I want to ask you a little bit about that when we come back. But what what was the recovery like after something like that? Wow. I mean, how much do you want to do that now or after? Uh, well, okay. I, I got my answer. Let's do it after the break. When we come back, <laughs> okay. we'll hear more about uh, Tom Ormsby's journey uh, right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. We're back. We're speaking with Tom Ormsby, who uh, went through a, a life or death ordeal uh, just over a year ago. And uh, Tom, I was just about to ask you, uh, what was the recovery like? What was it like? Oh, uh, well, it was um, it was something I couldn't have even predicted because it had a, for me in my situation it had several stages. The first was I've been in a coma for a month. So now I'm really in the next two weeks or so, I'm still waking up. You know, I'm, I'm not awake a lot. I'm probably asleep, you know, 22 hours a day, um, you know, getting woken up mostly for all the routine things. And I say routine in no dismissive way at all, but man, regular blood work, regular uh, blood checks, uh, blood pressure checks. I had to, uh, IV bags being changed, you know, constantly, uh, all sorts of medications I had to take. And the first two weeks was just me really just becoming awake, um, recognizing my surroundings, being able to nod. I'd had a tracheotomy uh, while I was in a coma towards the end of the coma because they uh, didn't want to damage the vocal cords from having the feeding tubes and, and the life support in so long. And so they had moved me to a tracheotomy as well. So my first couple of weeks was just really just lying there, just figuring out what's going on. And I was being told what was happening. So then I was starting to get a mental... Uh, understanding of wow, okay, this is a this is this is not a good spot, but at least I'm awake and I'm you know I'm on the right side of the sod. So after that, then uh, once once I became awake and I, under, I learned to understand, for people who come out of a coma, as soon as you start to show signs of being awake and uh, coherent, then they want to try to get you into some kind of physiotherapy as fast as they can. 
my situation, I, like I said earlier in our, in our discussion, I couldn't, I had no strength. I had none. I couldn't lift it. Like I said, I couldn't lift the bed sheets off the, off myself on the bed. And so you know, for me, my physical therapy began with them bringing in a, this machine with a sling on it. And they measured me while I was still in a coma for a sling so they could try to fit me in a wheelchair. You know, so my first session of physiotherapy was being, you know, literally like you see at a construction site, you know, me being slung out of the bed, you know, and also you got to understand I had catheters and bags attached to me everywhere and tubes and you know, IVs and they slung me out of the bed and, you know, strapped me into a wheelchair. I mean, that was the best I could do because I didn't have any strength. So they're trying to at least get me to start building strength in my core so I could even sit, you know, let alone stand or walk. And so that's kind of how the the recovery for me started was like realizing how bad this is. And then I was lucky at first, my family was there every day at my bedside, my wife, and then my, my youngest was home here in Halifax with me. So he was able to come in as well. He started his university classes in my hospital room, virtually doing his classes from my hospital room. Um, And so recovery was really, you know, mentally understanding what happens. And then I guess I, I had to make it. I made a decision. I wanted to live. Right? I wanted to live for my family. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see more life myself. And so I guess that was probably a good part of recovery. Was I know I was committed to getting better, but I, I had no idea how long this was going to take. I mean, you know, I had been in so long and looking at myself, like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And eventually, uh, physio moved to teaching me how to stand up. Can you imagine? That's how bad it was. I had to have someone literally standing there right in front of me, arms around me, and could I stand up once? And I'm standing up from a very tall hospital bed, too, so I'm not even standing. I, could, I couldn't use a proper chair, like a, a standard chair, because it was too low for me. Right? So I had to learn to stand almost, and I was almost in a standing position when I started. And that's the kind of stuff that was um, hard to uh, to do. I mean, you know, everyone was pretty proud, of, you know, and you think about, oh, I should be able to do this. Like I couldn't even feed myself. I, I couldn't feed myself. And when I find like when I finally came off the feeding tube, so that was seven, eight weeks in, and I couldn't even get a fork to my mouth. And I can tell you, those were some dark times. Like you know, watching the food fall off of my fork and my spoon. Uh, you know, and I could barely get enough on the spoon anyway to get in my mouth. That that stuff was hard. But you would, you know, you get small wins, and then you know, the encouragement from the medical staff was terrific. Um, I don't know if it was just the luck of the draw or just the nature of those people they have. Um, who have us especially working in intensive care recovery for heart um, areas, but great team there. A lot of young uh, staff members, of course, you know, great outlook on life. Not that an older person wouldn't, but the young, the young ones got their whole life in front of them, uh, you know, and uh, just a lot of encouragement. But that's that was so hard, like just not being able to do the basic functions of life, you know, for yourself. You know, I had to someone wipe me every day, wash me every day, and like I got a strength to wash myself, right? I'm just trying to put a face cloth on my face, you know, um, and that's that mental part is hard, especially when it's over and you're so exhausted. You've only done like, you know, like basically a sponge bath and you're exhausted, you know, and uh, will I ever get better? That question probably rattled through my brain a million times. Well, will I ever get better? You know, but then you see a small win, you know, and then my first time I tried to walk, um, that was hard because I, I've been lying down for so long. I've been lying down for two months, basically. Every time I sat up or whatever, I got lightheaded. Because my basically my blood uh, pressure had kind of reset itself inside my body to me being prone or lying down in a supine position my whole time, right? And so every time I sat up, I had to see, you know, am I going to be dizzy? And those things were hard. Like I said, basically, 
basics of life became very difficult. And that's where, the, you know, you could go to a dark place, I guess, if, uh, if you allowed yourself. How long did the process take before you, you know, felt comfortable or, or even left the hospital? You know, you were strong enough to move around a little bit on your own. Yeah, I, I got, I worked hard when I had the opportunity. I mean, overcoming the lightheadedness was hard. That really impacted my physiotherapy because I couldn't, I couldn't do much for very long because I would just keep getting lightheaded. And there was a time I actually think the physio, physiotherapy team didn't believe me. And it's not, you know, that I was trying to get out of anything, but they, I don't think they've seen it so severe with someone. And uh, so I was doing my physio one time and they, I said, look, I got to sit down. And so they actually put the, uh, the blood pressure cuff on me. My blood pressure was like 63 over 43 or something. You know, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? And so, I, I, but I worked hard. It was probably into the third month that I started to make my gains. You know, like I could walk from my bed to where the nurse's station was. You know, that was maybe 20 meters. And then I'd have to sit down and take a break. And I had like physiotherapy team members there with me, you know. And then I was using a, like a stand-up walker, like a, a chest height stand-up walker to try to get me to, to walk. And so eventually, you know, get around the nurse's station. And then maybe I could get a second lap one day. So those are the kind of things that uh, – but when I left the hospital, I was – I could still barely walk the length of the driveway. Um, you know, I, I had to use a walker. I used to walk it for a couple of months when I – Got back to the house. We had to rent a hospital bed here because I couldn't. I, my bed, bed sores and stuff were so, so bad. I had to use a, a hospital bed. So we had to clear out one of the spare rooms and do that. Um, you know, and then the onus becomes on you, right? But at that point, you know, the medication part of my um, recovery was now managed. I'm only I'm lucky today. I'm only on a low-dose aspirin every day. You know, that's really the only medication I'm taking as a result of all this. Um, but, you know, the work went in really when I got home. And, uh, and again, family was here to support me on that, but that's tough days. You know, I mean, I had to try to walk around the kitchen, you know, that was my exercise for the day. Um, you know, couldn't go down the stairs for a while. I could go up the stairs and downstairs, but you know, everyone had to watch me do it and make sure I didn't fall. And, but you know, you, you eventually, you know, you get your, you know, you get your wins and you get a little more strength. Christmas shopping was interesting. You know, it was good for my wife and family because they could go all around the mall. I'd take my walker and by the time I did one lap around the mall, they had everything done. So, <laughs> You know, you maximized your time. Um, I hate to do this to you. We only got a minute and a half left, and it seems rather unfair. Um, but you're obviously, you are you sound the same as you used to before, and uh, you're off uh, to go golfing now. But has this changed you? Well, I, everyone asked me that, and I, I think it's a fair question. Um, I, I don't know if it's changed me a whole lot, but I certainly have a lot more empathy for people who, are in similar situations. I never knew how hard it was to get around in a wheelchair. Like literally, even though we have sidewalks, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to move a wheelchair on a sidewalk. It's awful. So I think I've become a lot more uh, compassionate uh, towards everyone, anyone who's having a struggle, you know, anyone who's just trying to feed themselves. I understand how hard it is if you are struggling to feed yourself, right? And so I, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. And the other thing too, and I do want to, I do just want to thank everyone who's, who's stepped up, put themselves in the health healthcare field. Um, you know, the, the people who are looking after me, they have a tough job. You know, every day they have a tough job and they put themselves out there and they're taking care of other people's family and bringing them back to their families. And, uh, and that can't be understated. There's a lot of great roles out there in the world where people are doing great things for people. And this is certainly one of them. I, I just can't thank them enough. 
Well, Tom Ormsby, I know I'm one of many people who are so glad to hear that you're uh, you're back to um, health, if you will, or you're, the recovery is still underway, no doubt. But uh, thank you so much for telling us your story. It's uh, it's fascinating and eye-opening for a lot of people, I'm sure. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.